0: Good day, this is Boris Karpa, welcome to New Books in Military History. We have with us today a guest who has a, a variety of different qualifications to talk about the topic he'll be talking about. We have Dr. Michael Hankins, who is the curator of the uh, uh, of the U.S. Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps post-World War II aviation exhibit at the Smithsonian. It's quite a long description of stuff, and... Uh, but this is because Dr. Hankins is a very qualified person. He's going to talk to us about a very fascinating book, which is Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter-Pilot Nostalgia. I'm pleased to have you with us today, Michael.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: And... I'm going to just, you know, the, the reason I find this book fascinating, I don't just say this because I'm you know, part of the show, but because my own dissertation was about the way in which ideology formed naval procurement in the United States, and so the idea that there are... The ideas of ideas shaping, you know, the procurement of specific weapons, I always find this very fascinating. This, so I would like to ask you. You know, we are creatures much, my very much. You know, like in the tiny town of Anatevka, we are here also creatures of tradition. I would like to ask you: Can you explain to us why and how you came to
1: choose the specific topic for your book? Sure. Um, I it was it was kind of a long process that I stumbled into. You know, I had worked on my master's thesis, of, which was about the F four Phantom. Uh, in the Vietnam War. And I was really interested in that. And I knew that when I went into my PhD to write my dissertation, which formed the basis for this book, which it was heavily adapted from my dissertation, I knew I wanted to write about the F-15 and F-16, just because I wanted to kind of take it forward from the F-4, which I had already written about. I wanted to talk about the next generation of fighters after that and their development process. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to say about them or, or what angle I was going to take on it. I just knew I wanted to, you know, read about those aircraft and talk about those aircraft. I was fascinated with them. Uh, so I started reading and I just read a lot of secondary sources. I read some primary sources and I was just kind of immersing myself in the information that was out there about these airplanes and that things that started popping out to me of course John Boyd as a character comes up he's he was very instrumental in both of those airplanes so he kind of comes up as a main character but i also just noticed so many pilots that and not just pilots but engineers and and people that were working on the development of these planes people that flew these airplanes um they often not always but often talked about world war 1 being a huge influence on them. And they talked about this notion of aerial combat and knights of the air and duels in the sky and these types of things. And just how often these ideas kept coming up again and again. And I was just like, wow, these guys are like obsessed with this, uh, you know, world war one idea and sometimes a world war two idea as well. But, um, I started just kind of unpacking that idea of how, this kind of memory of world war 1 and world war 2 and the kind of idealized romanticized notion of air combat was affecting the thinking of a lot of the people that were designing and building uh, and flying the F15 and F16 and it it just um it really jumped out at me so I I ran with it and that's where the book came from
0: and you know we have I always say I always say to guests on my shows that we have a special audience on our show, which uh, very few other shows have, has uh, many of the people who are listening to us, who uh, will be listening to our recording, they are maybe working on books on their own. They are not only readers, but maybe they are also writers. And so I always ask everybody who comes on my show: I always ask, "Can you tell us about your experience writing the book, or what were the?" You know the biggest obstacles which you have overcome uh, how you've overcome them. So maybe some of our listeners can learn from this overcome their own
1: obstacles. uh sure yeah i i think i'll have a, a few different pieces of advice Um, sorry if you're hearing sirens in the background um there's uh, an ambulance happens to be driving by at this very moment uh feel free to edit that out if you'd like but um so one of the biggest problems i faced was finding sources um, because what I'm really dealing with here is, is not so much the technical details themselves about these airplanes. It's more about the attitudes behind design decisions. So it's, you know, finding documents about like how big the wing is or how big the engine is or, or, you know, how certain things were designed. Those documents are there, but I really wanted to get at this idea of why someone was dis- deciding to make the wing this shape and not that shape, for example, or, these kind of decisions and those often go unrecorded in official kind of documents so i had to look at a lot of interviews and uh, personal writings and personal emails and correspondence some letters uh, to get at these people discussing why they made certain design decisions and uh, seeing what influence their ideas and attitudes had on their design so finding those kinds of sources is a little bit more difficult Um, And you also have the challenge of interpreting those sources, because if you're dealing with oral history or people writing in correspondence, you know, you have to factor in, you know, the fact that they might not remember something uh, exactly right, or they might be coloring their memory with their kind of attitude. And that in itself was an interesting data point for me, so I would use that. But I often came across stories where, you know somebody told about a certain meeting that happened and I have four different versions of what happened and when it happened. Uh, and I have to reconcile that and I don't have any way of knowing exactly who is telling the, the exact truth of this. And probably all of them are, are misremembering certain parts of it or elaborating certain parts of it or, or, you know, thinking of it in different ways. So I have to look at all these different accounts of the same events and, uh, try to reconcile those, which is a little bit of a challenge. But for those of of your listeners who are writers themselves, um, it it was a challenge in in the fact that I basically wrote this book twice. I wrote it as a dissertation. And then when I went to turn it into a book, uh, I essentially rewrote the whole thing. I did a lot of extra research um, that informed the book that's not in the dissertation version. And I, I restructured the whole book. I rewrote huge sections of it. Um, and the book went through peer review, which is a great process to go through, but it was a very difficult process and the peer reviewers, you know, had a lot of great feedback, a lot of great comments that I incorporated and had me rewrite large sections of it a third time. So ultimately, I think the book is a lot better for that process, but it, you know, it was difficult, but it was also kind of fun.
0: Well, you know, writing a book, you know, whether it's a book of fiction or nonfiction, it's always in a, a sort of intellectual adventure. And of course, you know, like Birbo said... An adventurous uh, sometimes a time you wish you spent uh, wishing you were home in bed, but it, it's also uh, 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 it's an important experience for uh, to, to to write a book I think. And I'd like to ask something, which you, because you know, whenever I have somebody who talks about a uh, the trauma, I always ask about your insight about it because one of the important topics. And you talk. Um, um, in the early part of your book, you know, many fighter pilots have faced these trauma issues. And you've probably studied the sources in a lot more detail than I have. So mm-hmm. maybe you can tell us, do, you, do we have any statistics on how prevalent are, are trauma phenomena such as PTSD or other... You know, other psychological trauma. How prevalent are they in fighter pilots as compared to people in other branches? How does it compare to infantry or you know, artillery or whatever?
1: Yeah, those statistics. I'm I'm sure they're out there. I didn't do a comparison necessarily between pilots and other branches, so I, I don't know. I couldn't really tell you that. But there is. I mean, those that information is out there for those who want to find it. You might look at. Uh, Joseph Ochapa had a book recently called "Is Remote Warfare Moral," and, and he kind of does that comparison with uh, remotely piloted vehicle operated drone operators, uh, and seeing you know is are the rates of trauma that they're experiencing, the types of trauma they're experiencing, you know, are they significantly different? You know, and he has an interesting and very nuanced argument about that that uh, your readers might find interesting. What I was trying to do with the book was show. Um, less through statistical means and more through kind of personal experiences, that this this notion that we often have of World War One or or even World War II air combat being this kind of glorious, you know, knights of the air kind of mythological uh symbol, um, that image is true occasionally it's true just often enough that people can talk about it and give specific examples and say oh look but so often that that reality was covering up a much more grim uh kind of reality where these fighter pilots were experiencing you know horrific injury um the the experience of air combat in world war one in these very small you know biplanes and made of wood and canvas that's it's very difficult experience, uh, and it's very scarring. And a lot of the pilots talk about becoming nihilistic and, um, despondent and they, they experience all kinds of, of psychological trauma as a result. And, and I was looking at a lot of memoirs and letters and, um, you know, I would see really interesting things too, speaking about this kind of dual way of talking about it. I'll never forget coming across the letters of Henry Clay, who was a fighter pilot in World War One. Uh, American uh, who flew with RAF and then and then with the Americans, but he was writing letters home, and you know you see him writing to his sister where he talks about the glory of combat and how proud they all are and how exciting it is, and but then at the very same time he's writing to his younger brother who wants to become a pilot, and he's telling him please don't do this, you don't want to become a pilot, it's terrible, we are all depressed and nihilistic and every you know people die and it's meaningless and. Uh, this kind of double speak and and ways of talking about it, on the one hand, giving it this kind of veneer of glory and storytelling and glamour, but the reality, the darker reality being underneath, that's something I was really trying to get at with those first few chapters of this book.
0: I would just like to gently, I don't want to, gently push back on what you're asking, what you're saying, because I often read about people's experience in combat, whether it is in medieval times, where it is today, whether it is people who are not necessarily incumbent, but doing other things which have to do with danger and privation, and... you often see people making the argument that the fact that it is dangerous, that you might die, that you are suffering terribly while you're doing this, is what contributes to it being manly, and testing your nature, and... Maybe somewhat contributes to its attractiveness, an argument you should, you even sometimes see people who have experienced these awful things make. And so I would just like, is there really such a such a big tension between the idea that something is dangerous and that something is desirable for you as a, you know as a as a man who wants to experience you know their strengths.
1: Well, I think there's a range of responses to something like that. Um, You know, being put in a life-or-death kind of situation, uh, especially one such as flying an airplane into a combat situation, people have very different reactions.
0: Um, Well, let me me just... uh, I'm sorry, just let me... I try not to do this. I apologize for talking over you. I don't so much mean about among people who have experienced this, Although they react and they're also diverse, I'm thinking about the attractiveness of these experiences to all of the people who are, who have not themselves, you know, seen the elephant, but are, you know, have re- read about this in the memoirs, other pilots or talked to other people who have done it, and they say, well, this, this is a dangerous thing, and I want it for myself because,
1: whatever reason, are you trying to ask? Are you asking why is it? seem to be so popular or
0: no What i'm asking isn't the danger and the privation something which actually contributes to this fictional image of this as a glorious thing
1: which they want to do oh absolutely absolutely uh i think that's part of what makes these tales you know so powerful culturally right i mean why are people so attracted to these types of stories why does that image of the kind of ace fighter pilot you know the the eddie rickenbackers of the world the red barons of the world you know those stories take a very powerful hold in in the culture of of all the countries involved in world war one and, and certainly to this day i mean you, know, you only need to look at the popularity of something like the top gun movies as as an example of how that still sticks with us and these things have a lot of cultural power um, and that's that's something I do discuss uh, in the book quite a bit and I, I've researched more into that and, and elaborate on that in other in other areas um, outside of just this book but it's certainly the, the danger aspect, the excitement of it uh, contributes to its popularity. What I was trying to get at the book is although that is true, there is that danger aspect and it's very real there is also an undercurrent on there that does not often get discussed in the popular culture aspect of it
0: and this allows me I wanted to mention the film I actually wanted to mention the film because uh, as we know there was a second top gun film has just recently been in the news it has as i understand it has been a success at the box office i have not yet seen it myself but there was something which you describe a lot in the book, and I have actually gone back and I've read and I've read the hunters because it's mentioned in your book. And you've talked about other writings which are intended, which are intended to portray not not even so much a negative, but maybe a skeptical image of fighter pilots and their life and their and their their mindset. And I've 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 read uh, the Hunters, because I just need to check the author's name because I always have difficulty with this. Which, thank you very much. James Soldier The Hunters, The Hunters, which was written by somebody who was a fighter pilot, and it's clearly I've read it, and it clearly portrays the fighter pilot mindset as something which is tragic and and toxic, and it's corrosive to the protagonist's character. It eventually, in a way, it destroys him. It destroys him physically at the end, yes. It's a 1958 novel. I can spoil it by now. And it wasn't... And in your book, you describe the Air Force representatives when the film... when it was made into a film which altered the plot significantly and it removed some of the most, most skeptical parts of the plot. And the Air Force representatives did not seem to understand that this was intended as a sort of criticism of who they were. They actually view it as a as complimentary, uh, for work of fiction. And there are other works of fiction which you talk about, like the as, as as W.E. Biggles stories, which were intended to be a sort of subversion also, and yet people... Many people understood them as actually something which they wanted to imitate and see, even though it wasn't it wasn't intended in this way. Can you tell us more about this phenomenon where something is intended to be a criticism of, this, of these narratives and and yet ends up promoting them?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that happens a lot. You know where. And you you gave the two examples, and I'm building there on the work of Steve Call. Uh, people who are interested in this idea might look at Steve Call's book, Selling Air Power, that talks about Air Force movies quite a bit in the 1950s and 60s. And he talks about The Hunters quite a bit, and he, he goes into detail about the making of the movie uh, based on the book, which is exactly how you describe. Uh, the book comes across, I think to most readers, as kind of a critique of fighter pilot culture. Um, and it's, as you say very well, the corrosive force, um, and the movie tried to soften that quite a bit. And the air force leadership at that time seemed to want to have those elements in there. Um, and Steve call suggests maybe they didn't understand that those were critiques or they uh, They saw those as, you know, we might say they saw it as a feature, not a bug, uh, kind of thing. Um, I think this is a something that happens a lot. You can see the same phenomenon happening with a movie like Apocalypse Now, which I think the author or the uh, director, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, intended you know, as a critique of the Vietnam War. But there are many people in the military that view that as kind of a pro-war kind of movie, or at least one particular scene of it, the helicopter raid scene. Uh, something
0: that I, I have read. I have read when it when it is shown to military audiences, you know, the enlisted men will burst out and cheer when they see the helicopters coming in. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I have exactly. Read,
0: I have read that this was done. You know, in the run-up to Desert Storm, where they have apparently sounds of the people who are preparing to go into the fight, and they would you know people would laugh and cheer.
1: Yeah, this gets to some of that duality that I was trying to explore in this book. That People have a range of reactions to different things and um, we tend to, I think as humans, we tend to see what we want to see in whether it's movies or books or, or just life in general, we tend to interpret everything through a particular lens. Right? So when we read something like the hunters or watch apocalypse now, or watch Top gun, some people are going to interpret that as a critique or, or whatever. And some people are not. And some people, are going to look at something like the hunters and the kind of aggressiveness and the way that that fighter pilot culture kind of corrodes the character of the main character in that book and they might see that as a positive they might want to emulate those cultural aspects Uh, and the same thing with apocalypse now and and all of these are valid responses to art right i'm not trying to say that anyone is wrong just because you have a different opinion than the author of a work doesn't mean you're you're wrong it just means you have an interpretive lens and what this feeds right back into the point of, of my book that I'm trying to get across, which is that that interpretive lens goes in different directions. And so the people designing the F-15 and F-16, they had an interpretive lens on their own history. Uh, they're looking at World War One, and World War II history through this interpretive lens. They're seeing, you know, what they think is this glorious air combat that they want to emulate. And so when they design the F-16, they're trying to put in design features that will lead to that type of warfare, that type of combat, and allow them to kind of recapture something that they've interpreted. So I think what I'm trying to get across here is that interpretive lens that we all look at culture through, and we all like have our own reactions to things, they, that influences how we go about our own lives, whether it's designing airplanes, or whether it's how we you know treat other people in our relationships— it's these lenses kind of influence every aspect of us, and it's worth looking at what those lenses are and thinking about them. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with this book.
0: And there's another thing which kind of interested me, and it is the Air Force's reaction to to the Hunters. And I've, 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 I've again, I've, I've not seen Gun. Which is a great flaw in this particular episode of our show. I have not having seen Top Gun is clearly a deficiency right now, <laughs> but I have I have seen an analysis of Top Gun by somebody who was a senior military officer. You know, so you, you can so today you can find these analyses of different films by people who are professionals in all sorts of disciplines, and he argued that something which I thought about when I was reading your book he's talked about how the protagonist of top gun is of course is not a very good officer he does things which are very cool on camera but they are not particularly conducive to his uh, command functions and of course the the characters of uh, the hunters they have uh, they they have uh, so uh, so and so many air-to-air kills but as officers (laughs) As people who are supposed to work in a team, they some difficulties which they have, and some, some of them do get killed as a result of this, and it, it, it's a bit strange to me that uh, so this is something which Air Force representatives did want to leave in, and they might even have seen it as a positive, even though it seems to be... Opposed to some of the values which the U.S. military promotes as core values as part of its education.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting duality happening there where usually for most types of military service, you know, I think it's advantageous to have people that work well with others, that work well in a team. Um, obviously, you want people that are going to follow orders and not be, you know, pushing back against what commander commanding officers say. Uh, but when it comes to s- certain specific roles, and I think especially the role of fighter pilot is is emblematic of this, the Air Force and and before the Air Force even the Army Air Forces, Army Air Corps, and Army Air Service, um, and even Navy aviators to a large degree, um, they value someone who's going to be a little different. Um, this idea of a kind of maverick, so to speak, uh, attitude was seen as an advantage in air-to-air combat you know uh, i went back and did a lot of looking at interviews uh, of fighter pilots that the air force did in the 70s uh, and the 60s and this comes up again and again this idea that fighter pilots should be very individualistic and very aggressive or at least the officers that were being interviewed and, and conducting the interviews and answering the questions seemed to share this kind of attitude generally not every single person thought this but vast majority of them seem to to think aggressiveness and individuality and you know the ability to question orders and act on your own um and to be a little arrogant these were seen as positives for the role of fighter pilot not necessarily in an infantry officer uh but for a fighter pilot that's going to you know go out and chase the enemy now i think that has changed a lot in the years since then right as technologies have gotten more advanced and more complicated, more complex, you see things like, like with the F-15, for example, needing to be more team oriented and to, to work more with a larger group. You've got fighter pilots that need to coordinate what they're doing with AWACS and with forces on the ground and with ground control, uh, and, you know, close air support roles are going to be very different. And now as you get forward into like F-35 operations, you know, you, you need to have much more of a team- mindset than say Korean War F-86 pilots did Um, so I think that culture has changed a lot over the years and um, even though I do talk about this kind of maverick cultural identity being core to pilots I think that culture has shifted a lot since you know the 70s and 80s Um, so we're starting to see different types of things and that's been interesting to watch as well
0: well uh, uh, we we were talking about cultural issues and uh-huh. And um, just to clarify, perhaps for our listeners, uh, one important way in which, of course, the technology has shifted since that time, of course, and and during the Korean War, if you were if you were a pilot, if you were um, if you were in the skies over the Yalu, for uh, to take the crude example, you know, while radar did exist you were still better aware of what was going on than anybody else in the, if you saw some, something at the edge of your vision that this might be enemy aircraft then you were better aware of it than than uh, some radar operator somewhere else but today of course it's the reverse today we have today we have other aircraft which will be telling you where these enemy aircraft might be Mm-hmm long before you are able to visually see them you know as some kind of tiny metal gleam at the age of edge of your sight and uh, so this, uh, this has probably shifted what the relationship is a bit the fact that knowledge is distributed differently
1: yeah definitely i think there's a lot more teamwork a lot more interaction um than you can see but that that you see that evolving over time so like in the Korean War. There's some of that. There is a decent amount of kind of radar early warning happening, and you've got, you know, intelligence officers, you know, both in the air and on the ground that are kind of being able to aid fighter pilots and giving them warning of where the enemies are uh, and where to find them. But then once the battle starts, you know, the pilots are usually relying on their eyes, although the F-86 did have a radar-assisted gun sight that really helped, um, which was a big advancement over some of the World War II technology. But then when you get into Vietnam, you have, you know, ground controlled radar that was really important in uh, providing early warning of where enemy MiG fighters were. But you had ship based radar, you had air based radar, and all of this leads to, you know, today we have the AWACS systems, which are airborne radars uh, that give pilots this kind of early warning of where the enemy is, and they can then go engage on their own terms, which is really important for a lot of these fighter pilots.
0: As information which they are receiving is
1: probably more detailed as well. Absolutely, yeah, and you know that that was something that you know I one of the themes I tried to get at the book is this tension between some of the the cultural aspects of fighter pilots, you know, wanting to be more individualistic, uh, and that kind of brushes up against some of these new technologies. You know, one of the biggest things that the uh, the so-called fighter mafia uh, is arguing about is the use of radar in the aircraft you know a lot of the the air force leadership they wanted very large radar systems inside the aircraft so the f-15 eagle for example has a really large radar in the front uh in the inside of the nose cone and it can detect enemy aircraft from from very long distances uh which is useful uh but the fighter mafia you know the which is a group of of people that were working on the design of the f-15 and then later the f-16 uh, they did not want such a large radar. They wanted a, a much smaller airplane uh, that couldn't fit such a large radar system in the nose. So they wanted something smaller and they, they were okay with having a less powerful radar uh, because they thought that a smaller size was more advantageous in the long run. So that was one of the biggest things that they were fighting about throughout the nineteen you know late 60s into the 70s.
0: And this is something, something which is partly informed by your own experience because when... When John Boyd was uh, of course actively serving in Korea, the radar which he has experienced just were not as not as advanced as what was now available, so he
1: might not have seen viewed them as very good right and that's a great point is that um this tension always kind of exists, right? And if you look at a book like Steve Fino's Tiger Check, he does a good job of kind of looking at how fighter pilots of different generations responded to technological innovation. That's a really great book. Uh, But there's this idea of, uh, the reason that my book is titled The Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia is that I'm thinking about how a lot of these fighter mafia guys, which is John Boyd and, and his, you know, co-workers and, and his kind of mentees and, and collaborators, they often... You're a lot They're... kinder.
0: You're a lot kinder than John Boyd himself where he were referred to as acolytes, straight-up religious theory. Oh, sure.
1: That, and that is a term that they would use themselves. They would refer to acolytes. Um, and they, they certainly, a lot of the fighter mafia group... The fighter mafia starts off as a very small group. I think it's three or four people. Um, but it quickly grows... Uh, to include a a much larger kind of network. Um, And they would refer to John Boyd with kind of this kind of messianic tone um, and see him as an inspirational kind of figure. Um, But one of the things, to, to get to what you were saying, you made a great point about them kind of looking back at their own experience. And I think one of the things that they're doing is kind of using their own experiences and assuming that those were going to be true moving forward. For example... The radar experience which you mentioned but also the use of missiles um the they were looking at the vietnam war and there were a lot of technological problems with air-to-air guided missiles uh you know you're seeing sidewinder missiles being used uh, sparrow missiles being used heavily uh, and to some extent the falcon missile being used but these experienced a lot of problems the hit rates were very low the probability of kill rates were very low and a lot of pilots were frustrated with the performance of these missiles. And so there was this kind of assumption that missiles were not going to work moving forward. And so a lot of the fighter mafia ideas were about how do you get air to air combat to be successful by relying on guns instead of missiles. And this assumption that missiles were not gonna be effective. Of course, that doesn't play out. You know, you get into the mid 70s, and especially into the late 70s, early 80s, missile technology became much more sophisticated, much more capable and, you know, we haven't really had a lot of gun combat. At least the United States has not had uh, gun uh, air-to-air combat much since then. Uh, it's all been guided missile, which, had, which became much more effective. So they were kind of, I think, may, uh, I don't know if I use the term blinded, but they were certainly relying extensively on their own past and their own experiences to guide their future decision-making rather than looking at how these technologies might evolve into the future.
0: Well, this, this left me kind of move in the cat let me kind of move into a broader question you know we talk about and you touch upon this in your book we talk about the fighter mafia's very very skilled public relations effort uh, what, what and uh, john boyd and whatever else you can say about him he was actually a master salesman uh, i think that they, you know there's a stereotype in us culture as in some other countries that those uh, military industrial complexes corrupt it's it's, it's very height the generals don't really know what the soldier's need and it's it's it's, it's uh, of course it's uh, we could see it in outside the air force and the broader with what they used to call the reform movement of course there's a very famous uh, a comedy films called the pentagon wars which portrays this in a very cartoonish light mm-hmm. do, what, do you do you, do you think that this is a stereotype which is fighter mafia promoted or maybe to some extent they've benefited from something which already
1: existed in the culture and they kind of you know, took a ride on it yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question and a good question to ask. Um, you mentioned the movie Pentagon Wars, which is, uh, you know, it's a funny movie. And, of course, that's based on the book Pentagon Wars, which was written by James Burton. And James Burton was a very close mentee of John Boyd's. They were they had a very almost like a father son kind of relationship. That, and they were very, very close. Uh, so that movie it's not just influenced by the the reform movement it kind of is the fighter the uh fighter mafia reform movement perspective um very explicitly um so certainly those stereotypes that you mentioned about you know the higher-ups not getting it and you know there being these ridiculous procedures that are not based in reality or or that there's corruption in the military-industrial complex those stereotypes are you know definitely predate the reform movement those had been around for a long time they continue to be around um and you know it's not like there's not truth to them all right there there is issues in procurement policy there's you know the fact that people they used to joke about the revolving door between industry and government and how people could be on the government side and then go work in the industry side and and back and forth um and that can create issues um that's that's
0: that's for our readers I just like to say that there's a professional term, which, uh, in, in a, uh, which, which covers this, it's called regulatory capture. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a whole body of work in economics about how it happens. It's not necessarily a process of corruption. Sometimes it is, but there's a whole body of professional uh, theoretical work, which studies a specific process.
1: Exactly. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so, the reform movement are pointing to problems that they legitimately believe are problems. Um, but their biggest issue is it's not that they think the defense budget is necessarily too big or whatever. They just think that they're spending their money the wrong way. Um, what they want, and they being the, the fighter mafia and then later the reform movement, they want money spent on larger numbers of cheaper weapons Uh, they're very skeptical of you know advanced technologies they're very skeptical of complex technologies they want very kind of simplistic weapons um, and they want to like they'd rather buy you know a lot of f5s rather than a small number of f15s for example Uh, a smaller lighter fighter that they can buy in in larger numbers Um, and so this was a debate because the Air Force leadership at the time, and even more than just the Air Force, the kind of general defense leadership at the time, was wanting to invest in highly complicated technologies and highly advanced technologies. And they were okay with buying a smaller number of more advanced systems because they thought they were more capable. They were worried about Soviet capabilities. And uh, this was a a debate, and I think a legitimate debate to have. I mean, for all the critique of the reform movement uh, that could be levied, they did kind of force these debates to become a little bit more public and they're getting these arguments out into newspapers um, where people can understand what is being argued about within the halls of the Pentagon and kind of have a voice in that debate uh, which I think is interesting Um, so I, I wanted to move away from picking apart like are they right or wrong about this or that system and more talk about What are they really fighting about? What are the philosophical positions behind these arguments? And uh, I think that was very interesting. What are the assumptions and mindsets that are driving these different points of view, Uh, which is something I tried to explore a little bit in those later chapters.
0: So I would like to ask, it's a bit of a broader question, and you touch upon this a bit in your book. Of course, um, John Boyd was a very talented person, some of his insights are still in use today, and he, but he had around him this, this court of people, these acolytes, some of them not necessarily even in the Air Force, but in the broader movement, some of the somewhat eccentric people like William Lynn, who later moved into extremist politics, some of them even more marginally, you know, strange people and can you tell us a little bit about the relationship and the relationship between john boyd and all at these? Uh, i would like to say this growing crowd of people around him
1: yeah it's it's an interesting question it's something i, I try to unpack in the last few chapters of the book is to to kind of untangle some of the web of these relationships um, Boyd is interesting because his career goes through several different phases. And, you know, he worked extensively on the F-15 and F-16 aircraft, um, but really was not happy with either one. And so when the F-16 goes into production, he's, you know, kind of frustrated with how it turned out. Some of his ideas did not get put in the aircraft, or, or he felt like the Air Force had modified his intentions too much. Uh, and so you know, he eventually retires not too long after that. Um and becomes much more interested in this kind of intellectual um theorizing. He becomes sort of a military theorist and he he does some writing and he doesn't really publish much, but um if at all, but he gives a lot of lectures and, and he's, you know, fashioning himself as a, a thinker. Um, but he really sees himself as kind of a subversive force within uh, the Air Force and within the defense uh, world kind of generally. So he he has this idea that he is kind of fighting a sort of, and this is his word, uh, a guerrilla war against the leadership of the Pentagon and against uh, the kind of defense establishment in the United States. Uh, and so he, to do that, he kind of assembles this team of people with him. Um, so it's other engineers, mathematicians, designers, Um, other pilots, uh, people that worked with him, uh, that established this network. And of course they have friends in the industry side, um, as well. Um, and there are a lot of people that do not like John Boyd and do not like this group. Um, but there are a lot of people that do really like him and he, he fosters this, he becomes a very polarizing figure. People seem to either really love him or really hate him. Uh, which interesting to see these dynamics play out, but what happens Not long after he retires is, you know, he connects with, you mentioned William Lind, who at the time was a staffer for Senator Gary Hart. And Lind had a lot of connections with the media and with the press. And so he kind of becomes this broker that connects this kind of defense based, you know, insider Pentagon group of, you know, calling themselves the reformers. And he and he's the one who comes up with that term uh, as a reference to the Prussian military reformers. Um, he can Lind connects them with journalists and with uh, members of Congress a- and creates a much much broader movement that then goes very public and starts discussing these ideas publicly. Um, and I think that kind of David and Goliath aspect of the story is very attractive to a lot of journalists, uh, in particular James Fallows, who was writing for the Atlantic at the time, uh, becomes very enamored of of these folks uh, and starts kind of promoting a lot of their ideas in his articles and in his books and then other journalists start picking it up and it becomes a much broader conversation um which is really interesting to watch it play out so something i do uh in in my later chapters is i i look at a lot of the newspaper coverage of this movement and track some of the back and forth the arguments that are being made i find speeches that are being given and rebuttals that are being given and so it gets really colorful these guys the uh the Arguments being made are are very interesting and very heated. Uh, So it's kind of fun to unpack a lot of that stuff.
0: So there are. We are drawing our interview to a close very soon, but there are two. uh, There are. Really, is uh, framework questions, and the first one of these, can you explain? Is there a way you can explain to the audience? And I appreciate that you are, you are, you are a subject matter expert, and you actually work at the Smithsonian, where they physically have these aircraft. And, but is there a way you can explain to people who are not aircraft experts, what are the features of the F-15 and the F-16 which we can look and say this was put in the design because, it, because the fighter mafia had this insight about air combat and they wanted this thing? What is it about these aircraft which is an expression of Boyd's views or the other people's views?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That's kind of the central question I was getting at um, throughout my writing of the book. So um, that's something I really wanted to unpack is how that mindset of fighter pilot culture and nostalgia for World War I, how that influences this design. So Boyd comes onto the F-15 project about halfway through its design. And so it had already had a lot of work done on it. Um, But his main project was wanting to make it as close as he could to being solely devoted to air combat, which does succeed, although not quite in the way that he wants. Um, he wanted it to be the smallest airplane possible, um, to have a smaller radar, to have less weight, um, because, because the, the end goal of that was to be as maneuverable as possible. You know, before the F-15, a lot of aircraft were built for speed. Uh, top speed was a very big concern. Um, this ability to fly really high altitude was a very big concern. Um, so a lot of earlier aircraft were designed with those kind of performance aspects in mind. And when John Boyd comes in, he was like, no, we want it to be really agile, really maneuverable. Cause he's thinking about the Vietnam war and how the F four Phantom, which is a very large aircraft, which is very fast, very capable aircraft, very, very cool aircraft. was one of my favorites. Um, but it really struggled against some of the smaller, more nimble MiG fighters, like the MiG, uh, 17 and MiG-21 in Vietnam. And so he wants a smaller, more nimble aircraft. Now the F-15 is not small. (laughs) If you've ever seen an F-15, it is massive. Uh, It is huge. But he does succeed in things like changing the wing shape and uh, changing certain aspects of the design to make it more maneuverable. And it is, the F-15C is very much a air combat only type of machine. And it's very, very effective in that role john boyd did not see that as an as a full expression of his views he was frustrated he thought it could be even better and so he proceeded to work on a design called the lightweight fighter that eventually will turn into the f-16 but that was his attempt to get in the smallest airframe possible i want it small i want it lightweight Uh, i want it to be not have a, a big radar in the front maybe it doesn't even need a radar at all uh, and so they were kind of pushing for this much more extreme approach to maneuverability. Um, and that aspect is something that that I really, really emphasize and how that was influenced by looking at World War One and World War II fighter combat and, and wanting to recapture some of that to the point where one of the test pilots for the prototype of the F-16, the YF-16, would actually wear a leather style World War I flying helmet when he was doing some of the test flights, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but they, a lot of the test pilots talked about it in the same way, that they felt this airplane was kind of recapturing an older way of flying in some respects. Even though the F-16 is a very highly advanced, you know, for its time, very technologically sophisticated airplane, um, that technology was used in a way to try to recapture this, this earlier way of flight. Of course, once the F-16 goes into production, it has a lot of changes made to the prototype that Boyd was frustrated with and felt like it was getting away from his kind of more pure vision. Um, but that, those are the kind of the details I go into, into the debates about wing shape and engine design and cockpit design and how all those things are influenced by wanting to have a certain type of flight experience and certain types of capabilities. Um, and what the end result, of course, is two really great aircraft. I mean, both of the F- F-15 and F-16 have, you know, really uh, effective combat records. They're very effective aircraft used by multiple countries. Um, so, some people think that because I, I write about them in this way that I, mu- I must not like these aircraft, which is not, not true. I have models of both aircraft on my desk. Uh, I like these aircraft. That's why I wanted to write books about them. They're really interesting.
0: But there's, there's an idea, this idea that they are going to be this jet-powered uh, nightly charger, which uh, was a bit, which which maybe maybe a bit nostalgic. But I um, I just like to you know there is something you you know I I I know it's not strictly the topic of your book, but I would just like to. Gently inquire about this. You know, a lot of these discussions, a lot of these uh, things, which uh, John Boyd uh, did, you know, some of them were very technology specific, and so a few more iterations of aircraft later, you know, they will become surely relevant, aircraft will be totally different, but I, I, I think that some of his contributions are, you know, more general in their value, even though they're not fully original to him, like you pointed out in your book. Aren't there things in his thought which are more general, like the OODA loop is used, for example, now in business, it's gone beyond, it's, it's left the stables? Aren't there things, in, so, do you think that there are things that Boyd thought or, like, that are maybe still valuable in a more general, not technology-specific way, or do you think that it's just uh, something which is about this era and, you know, this era is gone and it's not going to be relevant uh, Well, I mean, I'm not...
1: Yes, the John Boyd obviously is very relevant um, to this day. That's why he, you know, is a main fi- figure of this book i I mean i wouldn't be talking about him this much if he wasn't important you know um there is an interesting phenomenon with boyd where so many people really really love him and and find a lot of value in him um that a lot of the books written about him are very kind of effusive in their praise and, and stuff and i i wanted to get a little bit more of a nuanced view of him so um you know, I'm trying to kind of play it a little bit more down the middle and do, do a different type of analysis on him. But certainly he has a big influence. I mean, the biggest influence he has and probably the most important thing about his career, I think, is energy maneuverability theory, which is uh, a big sounding word. But it's, it's he used equations from the field of thermodynamics to talk about how fighter aircraft maneuver And it's really important because it gives a mathematical language to describe aircraft maneuverability, which didn't really exist before. Um, He's not necessarily the first person to come up with doing that, but the way that it was applied uh, is something that he did and had a huge impact on aircraft design. But it also had a huge impact on training, you know, programs like Top Gun and Red Flag. They use a lot of these ideas um, to help train fighter pilots how to be more effective. Um, it's, so it's something that comes up again and again and again. And it's 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 an important thing. Energy maneuverability theory is is really, really important. It has a lasting impact to this day, and it still has an influence to this day. So you mentioned the OODA loop. I don't get too much into the OODA loop in the book because I'm focused more on Boyd's kind of early and medium career. Um, most of his later work, like I mentioned, kind of gets into kind of military theory, and this is where you get into the OODA loop. For those who don't know, um, listeners who might not be familiar with the OODA loop, uh, that's an acronym, O-O-D-A. It stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And it's supposed to describe a process that fighter pilots go through uh, when they're in combat, that they observe something, they orient themselves to that, they decide to do something based on that information, and then they take action, and then they start that process over again. And he argues that going through that process quickly gives you an advantage over your enemies. And you can apply that. He would argue you can apply that to not just fighter combat, but you can apply that to, you know, general tactical, operational, and, and perhaps even strategic thinking, um, generally. So there's a lot of work on this. I'm, I'm summarizing it very quickly. And I'm sure people who are big fans of the OODA loop are, are thinking right now, like, oh, you're not explaining it in detail enough. There are a lot of works out there and books out there that, that go in more detail, um. I didn't get too much into explaining that in this book because it was a little beyond what what, what I was focusing on. Um, but I will say there are a lot of people who get a lot of value out of the OODA loop concept and some of the other concepts that Boyd has spoken about in his later years. And I think if that's useful to people, then that's great. Um, there are a lot of people that don't get a lot of value out of it. They They think that it's very similar to kind of other ideas. There are other Ways it's, as describing... it's, it's,
0: not fully, it's not fully original to Boyd. There is a lot of previous work which he has either built on or maybe some of it he has not fully been aware of. It's not fully original to him, no, but um, he has uh, popularized it a lot and he has talked about
1: it a lot and thought about it a lot. Exactly. You're, you're exactly right. Like Just because it's not the most original idea in the world doesn't mean it didn't have a big impact for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, for those who find it very useful, that's, that's fantastic. Um, but there, there's been a lot of kind of argumentation about it in the literature and there, it seems like there's an attitude of some people that that are like, this is a groundbreaking thing that you must acknowledge is great. And there's a lot of people that are like, you know, they don't see it as a very useful idea to them. And I think that's valid too. So I, I, I was just trying to argue in my book that like, Hey, there are multiple ways of looking at this, and they're all valid and all important, and that's that's okay.
0: Right. I'm just. Um, I was just wanting to highlight for our viewers that this might be a contribution which he has made, which is a more general one, and maybe not even only in the military field because I've seen it in business. And there's a value to our discussion of Boyd and the fighter pilots, which goes beyond the specifics of the Air Force itself. I don't have a fixed opinion on whether this was uh, on who Boyd was and how we should value him. Uh, I'm but I would like to thank you for these answers. I'd like to thank you for being here with us. But there's one final question. As I've mentioned, we're creatures of tradition here. and as we said, our show is about books. It's about readers. It's about writers. And so I'd like to ask you, what are the you know about your own personal book journey? We're all on a reading journey here. Can you tell us about books which maybe you are reading, or maybe you want to suggest
1: to? our audience in some way sure i i'm a big reader obviously as a historian i read books all the time so i'm kind of constantly reading history books and i also read a lot of uh non-history books and a lot of fiction um a few things i'll mention um you know I, i'm a musician as well so i i like reading musician books and music books uh dave Grohl's memoir the storyteller was really great i'm currently halfway through bono's memoir um called Surrender which is very very good so far at least Uh, so I'd recommend those but um, I do have for people who want to get into some some history uh, in a fun way uh, I would recommend Margaret Weidekamp's book she's a colleague of mine at the museum Margaret Weidekamp's book called Space Craze which just came out recently and it explores the way that imagined space travel like science fiction like Star Wars or Star Trek and other things uh, have influenced real world space travel like actual, you know, spaceflight in the real world. And it's it's a fantastic look at popular culture and its impact on, um, you know, actual programs. And it's it's a really fun read. Uh, and I think readers will find it interesting. I also read a lot of fiction. I try to read um, a varied amount of fiction. Um, I think one of the most interesting novels I read recently that really resonated with me uh, was a memory called Empire by Arcady Martin. This is a fascinating book. Uh, it's a sci-fi book. It's it's about a space empire, and there's murder mystery, political intrigue, and a lot of really fun space, you know, sci-fi technology stuff. Uh, but what makes the book really interesting is it deals with this issue of cultural memory, which is an issue I explore in my book, so I resonated with that. But Arcady Martin, she is a historian of the Byzantine Empire. And so she's able to incorporate a lot of her knowledge of how empires work and the relationships between empires and kind of colonized areas on the periphery of empires and what that complicated and complex relationship is, both on a larger political level, but also on a very individual emotional level. And I found this book completely engrossing and fascinating. and I'd highly recommend it to, to anyone, whether or not you're a sci-fi fan. It's a great read.
0: Thank you for being with us today, Mike. I really enjoyed talking to you. You are a very, you. Great intervie- you are a very good interviewee to have. And if you write another book, you're always welcome on the show. I would like to well, wait, write another book because I know how these things work.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm working on number two right now. Thank you, Mike. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.